Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So guys, I don't know if you heard, but Jared Kushner has read 25 whole books on the conflict in the Middle East. That's probably more books than he's ever read about anything else. Wow, 25 books was one of them yours, Tammy? <laughs> I, I think like... I want the list, damn it. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I think we, we got to know, like, somebody tweeted when this came out, were, were any of them written by an Arab? Oh. Um, which I think is an actually that's, a, an that's interesting question. a very question. good question. And of course, my book on the conflict is called How Israelis and Palestinians Negotiate... So he didn't need to read it because he there's nothing he just read left one to half. negotiate. He skipped every other chapter. Did you write the plan? How long was this plan? Eighty pages. That's like at and least two pages. Hold a book. on, it included a map. He made really? a point that's never been done before. Eighty pages and a map. Did the map have names of countries on it? Yes, but they were all labeled Bangladesh. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Jared Kushner has knocked this term paper out of the park, guys. A for effort. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Deus Ex Bolton edition. Good. <laughs> oh, Can't nice. See I like it. Yeah. Like rising from behind a screen, <laughs> <laughs> like a lightning bolts and lava coming down. And all the dramatic irony of, exactly. of the participants not noticing that exactly. they're here. They don't see him. All the plots are resolved. There's a wedding. It's great. It ends really well. <laughs> but shouldn't it be the Deus Ex Mustachia edition. Ooh, I like that. You get some extra scotch for that one, Mr. Wittes. <laughs> <laughs> Pulling out your Latin. Is it really, is it Mustachia really Latin for mustache? No. Well, not that I know of. Mustachia sounds like, like, like Greek food. It was just to rhyme with machina. We know. Okay, just checking. Okay, thanks. Sorry. <laughs> I'm here in the jungle studio with my good friends Ben Wittes, Tomorrow Coffin Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hello. Hello. It's a bright, sunny Wednesday. We got a lot to talk to on the podcast this week. John Bolton has a story to tell about that drug deal in Ukraine. The White House unveils its much-anticipated Jared Kushner term paper to solve peace in the Middle East. And Joe Biden envisions foreign policy after Trump. Uh, so we are in day seven of the impeachment trial, I think, right? Uh, oh, I think eight? this is the fourth year we've been in the impeachment <laughs> trial. I'm pretty sure it's been going on forever. I think it's day eight. Day eight. Precise. Day eight. If you are not listening, by the way, to uh, the – I guess the sequel to the report, which we're calling the impeachment, right? The reportening. The reportening. Electric <laughs> boogaloo. Uh, if, you, if you are not listening to that, you'll find it in the report feed and it's a great sort of daily digest. It's never been like more than an hour and a half, I think, so far of all of the highlights that happened that day, much like the – Lawfare series of the testimony without the bulls. So and we're doing it. We're, we're it. doing it actually without cutting anything, just by speeding up everybody's <laughs> so everyone's It's like the Chipmunk chip yeah, family exactly. Christmas. <laughs> That's a joke. No, we're not really doing it. <laughs> well, we Alan did. Dershowitz sounds like Alvin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> Can we do the musical version of the impeachment trial? <laughs> oh, yeah. auto tune it all. Somebody should. Marilyn Miranda is probably on that right yeah. now. Um, so we're in about the eight of this. Obviously, it feels like it's been going on for a while. Um, and much like some kind of the end of a Greek tragedy, here we were thinking we maybe know the ending. And then, boom, turns out that John Bolton's book actually speaks to not just his mustache, but what he knew about a quid pro quo. But does it sing to it? Does it shame? sing to it? That's the thing. Um, so, but let me start with you on this. I mean, so, so obviously, this arrives at a moment in the narrative and of our understanding of what happened uh, with regards to Ukraine that adds a lot of drama and confirms, I think, things that people already probably knew or inferred from the facts and evidence. But does it really matter to the impeachment trial itself? And let, let's start with that, and then let's talk separately about the question of whether John Bolton is going to end up testifying. So I think it does matter. And the reason it matters is that there were a few, we don't know how many, Republicans who were considering voting to hear from witnesses. And now there are a few more, and we still don't know how many, but the momentum that Senator McConnell had been gathering to shut the whole thing down after this sequence of opening arguments and uh, questions has been disrupted by this. Now, whether it's disrupted in a fashion that it cannot be returned, I don't know. And I don't, you know, the the legislative politics of the trial are super complicated and the key players are not announcing their positions, but it is significantly harder than it was two days ago for three days ago for them to simply say we've heard enough, particularly knowing that this book is coming out. And so I think it is significant for the trajectory of the trial, whether it's ultimately decisive as to whether we get to hear from either John Bolton or other witnesses remains to be seen. Yeah, look, I, I agree with all of that. And I think the way to understand this is that Senate Republicans have been operating within a zone of completely implausible deniability. The idea that any person in good faith could look at the record that the House and the House managers have produced and say, and, and say, ah, oh, shucks, I just, I don't know. Obviously, he was interested in these investigations into the Biden. And yeah, he did admit that he froze military aid, but I don't know if you can put two and two together. Like, and I don't see the linkage here. If only we had that firsthand witness or another firsthand witness, this mountains of evidence. So like, we were already in a place of like, of Basic nonsense, right? The, the, these are members that are pretending as though they aren't really sure what happened here. Um, and, and they're pretending. And what John Bolton has done is made that zone of implausible deniability even more implausible. And the question is whether or not it's going to put, push it past its breaking point. The thing that Republican senators also have to contend with is John Bolton's telling his story. So we can talk about sort of the, the, the current status of his book manuscript um, uh, in a moment if, if we get to it. Um, you know, but, but this story is coming out one way or another. And so you would think that the calculation for Republicans might be, well, the story is coming out one way or another. I, I might as well vote to, to hear witnesses. And that'll be sort of my defense um, you know, from, from future criticisms. I actually think it's plausible it plays in the other direction which is that the last thing these senators want is for this information to come out in an undeniable format like somebody testifying under oath. 
before they have to actually vote on the question. Because once they've voted on the question, if the book comes out later, then they can pretend not to have seen it. They can say, oh, you know, I'm gravely concerned. They can do whatever they want. But there's no moment in which they actually have to render a judgment. And so what I think we're seeing right now is the the sort of the, the conflict of instincts here. On one hand, understanding that There is no politically justifiable way to explain why you don't want to hear this accusation from John Bolton. The idea that you want to read the manuscript in a classified setting or maybe it'll get – this voters are – no voter is going to believe you on that. Uh, On the other hand, if you know deep in your heart – and I think Mitt Romney and Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski know deep in their hearts – they are going to vote to acquit the president of the United States. The idea that you would allow this kind of evidence to be put on the record right in front of your face and that you would vote on it and vote on it in the kind of legacy determining way that this vote will appear in your obituary. I think that they want they want to avoid that situation at almost all costs. What, what do you think about that? Because I, I, I'm struck by – I have this question actually now a lot of times looking at senators wondering how many of them have thought to themselves, look – most senators are actually never remembered. And what I'm really interested in is getting reelected. Because I wonder too, I mean, are they thinking about the legacy piece of it or not? And sometimes it feels like maybe they're not and they're just playing a short-term game. Or maybe they feel like they can't afford to think that far ahead. So I think the primary emotion that comes off of the Republican caucus in waves is fear. Hmm. And it's fear that is rooted in clear bullying and threats from the White House, head on a pike, you know, don't cross us. The way the president badmouths anyone who even steps a millimeter out of line, et cetera. So, you know, whether it's as much of a calculation as I might never be in the history books, but I want to get reelected, I don't know. It might be very short term. But I think the dynamic that Susan just described is a really interesting one because essentially what the president's lawyers and the White House and the Senate Republican leadership are asking their caucus to do is they're saying, look, this isn't about the substance of anything. This isn't really about a choice that you have. This is just a game of nerves. Here we are. We're all at the edge of the cliff. We're all holding hands together. And we just need to keep our nerve and jump. And then this will all be over and we can all move on. And if you've been serving in an institution, the United States Senate, which over the last decade plus has been essentially unable to do anything of significance except put judges on the bench in the last couple of years, conservative judges, then, you know, really, it's not as though you're risking a lot. And so I think this is almost like some weird kind of social psychology experiment. Well, Ben, I also have a question, too, about the publication review process and how it plays into this. You know, we, oh, and, and the sudden revelation that this book must be top secret. Right, exactly. Right. <laughs> the so toughest na- of top secrets. Yeah, so now we've learned that as of that last Thursday, two days before the Washington, the New York Times story came out, Bolton learned from the people doing a publication review that the book contained classified information, including top secret information. That they believe that they believe. Notably, in the letter that his lawyer sent when the manuscript first went in, I guess now about almost four weeks ago, they said we do not believe. This had, there's any information in here and even tried to imply that we're sort of doing this out of an abundance of caution. But I think, Susan, as you've pointed out, that's nonsense. Of course he had to submit this for publication review. The man held the highest security clearances in the government.
mind, and he knows darn well. So, but, but my question is, given that that, public, that that manuscript has been sitting in the White House in some you know chain of people who review these things, which I would think would include people in the White House Counsel's office, given the nature of the material and where Bolton worked, it seems like the White House knew at least to some degree, what was in this manuscript, but didn't say anything about it. And of course, the White House counsel is on the floor of the Senate presenting the president's case. So why didn't they affirmatively bring this forward? Or was that not their job to do so? Well, I think it, you know, I I think the, the White House, first of all, lies. And their propensity to lie, you know, they've lied about bigger things than the existence of this manuscript. Secondly, we know they knew the manuscript existed because John Bolton has been pretty open about the fact that he's got a book coming. And, you know, so everybody everybody knew that this manuscript existed or that some version of it existed. What they knew that we didn't know was that they had it, that they'd seen it, and what it said. But of course, they knew those facts too because the president knows what his interactions with John Bolton are. And so the fact – I don't actually think it's a huge incremental lie that some part of the White House had seen this manuscript and the White House counsel's office had not been candid about it on the floor of the Senate. After all, the White House counsel's office has not been candid about anything on the floor of the Senate. Why should they be candid about this? And by the way, to the extent that they wanted to, even without the manuscript, the president is fully capable of telling his counsel what his interactions with Bolton are. So I think the focus on that is a little bit of a misfire, honestly. To me, the 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 relevance of this is much more about the Senate than about the White House's behavior. The White House has been in the business of a cover-up and lying about this from the beginning. And John Bolton has been fairly open and fairly frank about the fact that he has a story to tell. And by the way, we know components of the story he has to tell because we know his interlocutors in that story. Fiona Hill, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vinman, right? We know people who were working for Bolton who reported uh, that they had interacted with him in the context of this. And so we've always known that there was a story here. The White House has always been in the business of preventing that story from coming forward. And the question has always been whether the Senate wants to hear that story anyway. To me, the relevance of this is we now know that on March whatever date, dozens of pages are going to come out reflecting John Bolton's side of this story. We know they exist. We know you can pre-order them on Amazon. And so the question is really a question for senators, which is, are you going to vote to be blindsided by this when it comes out? And that to me is less about the White House than it is about the individual senators who have to, who, who you know, whose own individual integrity are just, you know, are on the line to the extent that they're even plausibly can be said to still exist. I, I think Ben is absolutely right about that dynamic. I also will just say it's been striking to me even before the Bolton revelations, but I think they bring the, this into sharp relief. The extent to which 
the Senate Republicans in forging their own strategy and actually the procedure of the trial itself have been forced to constantly run to catch up with whatever the white, you know, whatever the White House is throwing their way at any given moment. And now with the Bolton revelation, you know, and the White House saying, well, this is top secret. And the top secret revelation comes in the wake of senators like Lindsey Graham saying, well, let's review the book manuscript in a classified setting. It's almost as though the White House won't let Senate Republicans help them, you know, and and so Senate Republicans are in the position of constantly having to change the rules or change their proposals or change what they're going to vote on. And the whole thing just starts to look like a game of Calvin ball. Look, it also does look as though the White House is gearing up for a substantial abuse of the classification authority. So we don't actually know um, what's in John Bolton's book that they are asserting that is classified. They're saying that they're in, in this letter that they sent to John Bolton, they said that it appears to contain significant amounts of classified information, including some information uh, classified at the top secret level. And, uh, of course, the, the president has really broad authority, uh, you know, to set classification levels, including retroactively. Um, but we haven't heard anything about John Bolton's computer being seized or any kind of classification spill remediation yeah. measures having been taken. And, and ordinarily, whenever the classification review uh, board is informed that somebody has written classified information on a private device and potentially disseminated that and presumably shared it in into the White House via a non Unclassified computer, right? That would have and been sent on the low side. Yeah. Um, typically, there's some you you take steps to remediate that. In fact, that's one of the things mm-hmm. that um, that uh, whenever you're outboarding from a intelligence from the intelligence community, they warn you about. You better be really, really careful whenever you're writing stuff or sending it in for prepub review, because if you accidentally write classified information on your personal devices, we can and will seize them. Um, and so this has a lot of sort of the um, the markings of not a good faith assessment that John Bolton's book book actually contains top secret information, something that um, seems pretty implausible to me. Um, First of all, because we know John Bolton actually wants this book to be published. Second of all, because he's, um, you know, this book is being published by Simon and Schuster. Certainly, they've had their lawyers read both John Bolton's non-disclosure agreements and the manuscript of this book 45 times, if not more at this point. So I think it's pretty implausible. Um, it also, the, the way the White House is reacting to this, it looks a lot more like uh, the White House is using pretextual security and classification justifications to prevent this book from coming out, or probably more likely to substantially delay this book from coming out, rather than a White House that is genuinely concerned that there has legitimately been a spill of classified information. I'm sure that has nothing to do with why we saw clips of it in the New York Times. Quick uh, yes or no answer. Will John Bolton testify, Susan? I still think yes. No. I think the Senate Republicans just are going to keep their eyes tightly shut. I think he will testify. And I think the reason he will testify is that people friendly to John Bolton will leak exactly as much information as it takes to force members of the Senate to vote to hear from him. I'm going to go with my colleague at Political Blake Council's theory, which is the Senate will vote to call witnesses, but then be unable to agree on which ones to call. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right. So let's talk about uh, other plans coming out of the White House, which, as far as we know, contain no classified information. But finally, finally, we've been waiting for so long for the big 
Israeli-Palestinian peace plan. Finally, peace in the Middle East. It's I know. Here. I'm going to start learning piano, guys, and then I'm going to go on and, and try fly fishing. You look so relaxed. Yeah. yeah. I'm looking All forward to work. a blissful retirement. You it's did done. it. Yeah, you've put yourself out of a job, which is what you always want. the deal of the well, century. Ja- Jared put me out of a job because he knew how tired I was. And he read all those books. He read a lot of books, you guys. <laughs> uh, so, Tammy, first tell us uh, – uh, sort of the broad contours of this plan, but obviously let's get to the meat of it. How are you feeling? Underwhelmed? Overwhelmed? How whelmed are you by the proposal? And talk a bit about the, uh, I guess you might say, uh, unusual, unorthodox kind of rollout uh, that the president uh, had for this and his special guests at the White House. Okay, but first I have to start with a mea culpa. Okay. So on this podcast and on Twitter numerous times and in many conversations with colleagues who also work on this issue, I insisted repeatedly that Trump was not going to release this peace plan. <laughs> Jacob's laughing because he knows that he, that I did this. Showed you. And I, I was wrong. Um, the reason that I was skeptical is because I said any peace plan that is going to be credible enough to win minimal welcome from Arab governments like the Saudis and the Emiratis would have to contain within it things that are so unpalatable to the Israeli settlement movement and to Netanyahu's only coup party that the White House wouldn't be able to navigate and thread the needle. And so, you know, why would they go ahead and do something that isn't going to get them the benefits they want and could even be politically costly to Trump with his evangelical base who are aligned with Netanyahu and the settlers? Well, it turns out I was wrong. Why? Because the White House found a very clever way to put things in the plan that on the surface look like they meet some Arab desires and and needs, but in practice are basically unattainable. (laughs) Um, The structure of the plan is that the Trump administration has produced a map Um, that designates territories that will be permanently Israel and territories that are in theory set aside for at least four years um, for a potential down-the-road Palestinian state under certain conditions. Yes, that's a long sentence. The White House plan says that the Israelis can go ahead and annex the territory that's going to be theirs right away, and the United States will recognize it. And the Palestinians will have to meet a set of fairly extensive and onerous conditions before their statehood would be recognized. So even though the plan includes things that the Israeli settler movement and the evangelicals don't like, like Palestinian statehood, and at least on paper, formally speaking, uh, the possibility of a Palestinian capital in an isolated Arab neighborhood of East Jerusalem that is already on the wrong side of the security barrier— In practice, those things don't come into operation until Hamas is disarmed and the Palestinian leadership controls the Gaza Strip. Never mind how that's going to happen. So the Arab states and others in the international community have said, well, thank you so much to the Trump administration for trying uh, and for putting ideas on the table. And we really hope to see the resumption of Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. They haven't rejected this plan outright. But it's clear that there really is no basis for negotiations in this plan because the Israelis get everything they want up front. The Palestinians will never get most of the things that they want slash need. 
And the plan is so detailed that there's not a lot to negotiate over at all. So it seems that this is, am I being too cynical to say that this is just largely a big face-saving maneuver for Jared? If only it were just that. And this, you know, and this is why what the White House has done is is so damaging because David Friedman made clear in an on-the-record call with reporters yesterday, Israel does not have to wait even one day to begin to annex these territories in the West Bank that the United States has decided are meant to be Israeli, to annex them to Israel. And the minute Israel does it, the United States will recognize that Israeli annexation and recognize Israeli sovereignty. So no, this could, in theory, be put into practice even before the Israeli elections on March 2nd. And it certainly could be put into practice if an Israeli right-wing government is in power after the elections before President Trump does or doesn't get reelected in November. In other words, it could very easily present the world and a, a new potentially democratic American president with a fait accompli. So does this mean that this is, is the administration being delusional? Is this intended to be a gift to Netanyahu? If this is, if this is plainly unachievable and is, is not a real plan because it doesn't have buy-in from both sides, what is the point, right? What are they attempting to accomplish here? The point is to bestow an American blessing on Israeli unilateral annexation of territory in the West Bank, territory that under the American plan will include every single existing Israeli settlement. Not a single Israeli settler would have to relocate under this plan. There's one other jaw-dropping thing in the plan that I can't avoid mentioning because it's so horrifying, which is that the map laid out and the text um, published yesterday by the White House contemplate that an area that is now part of the state of Israel that contains about 300,000 citizens of Israel will be carved out of Israel and given to a future potential conditioned Palestinian state. And why is that area being handed off from Israel to the potential state of Palestine, because those 300,000 Israeli citizens are Palestinian Arab citizens of Israel. So this is a plan that had been advanced in the past by Avigdor Lieberman, and it essentially amounts to the forced transfer of Israeli citizens out of their own country, their disenfranchisement. It is an American proposal for ethnic cleansing with a map. And I, I don't think I've ever seen anything as horrifying given the authority of American foreign policy. So, Ben, this seems to me then this this is – it's a political gift from the administration to Netanyahu. It sounds like it is arguably a political gift from Trump to the people he thinks will be satisfied in his base. Elections aren't usually run on foreign policy, but boy, this seems like uh, a big bomb that has been now thrown into the middle of the foreign policy debate, right? I mean, what Democrat – I mean, maybe, Tammy, you correct me if I'm wrong. This is like what Democrat is going to run in favor of this policy? No Democrat is going to run in favor of it. There will be Democrats who find relatively little to say in denouncing it um, because of constituencies they have to keep happy. Look, I think it is actually more about Israeli domestic politics right now than U.S. domestic politics. The president is trying to give Netanyahu something to run on 
and something that allows him to change the dynamics of this this uh, standoff between the Israeli political blocs that'll sort of this is comes in the context it was literally the same day as the formal indictment of Netanyahu and the Israeli legal system. And this is something that the Israeli far right has been working toward for a very long time. And I did think the inclusion in it of this particular pet project of a Vigdor Lieberman, which is this transfer of this area of the of Israel to the Palestinian state the putative Palestinian state may be an attempt to urge Lieberman who has defected from the far right block and been insisting that he will not sit in a government under Netanyahu with the with the religious parties may be a way of trying to coax him back in all that said I have to say, I think Susan asked the right question right at the beginning, which is, is this delusional? And I think the answer is yes. This peace plan, and I'm going to get in trouble with a lot of my uh, Jewish friends for saying this, but this peace plan reminds me of nothing so much as sort of early, like mid-19th century Indian treaties in the United States where, you know, you kind of carve out a reservation and you say, we, if you do X and Y, we'll recognize that you have the eternal right to, you know, full sovereignty in this square patch of, of, of dirt after we take everything from you. And, you know, there is nothing about this that any reasonable Palestinian should be anything other than gobsmacked at. And you can't actually make peace without at least a little bit of buy-in from the other side of the conflict. And so I I, I just think it's it, this will have its day as long as both Trump is president and Netanyahu or somebody like him is prime minister, but it will not last for a day longer than both of those conditions are are available. So so Tammy, is would any Republican president or would many Republican presidents have created such a plan? Or is there something specifically Trumpian or Trumpian slash Netanyahu about this plan? I mean, should we be reading it as a unique product of this president and the relationship he has with the current leader of Israel rather than the reflection of how the Republican Party thinks about solving this problem? That's a really interesting question, Shane. And I think that there are two dimensions, one substantive and one political. The substantive one is that, yes, this is a uniquely Trump administration proposal because its authors, not because of President Trump himself, but because of the people he brought into the administration with him, specifically his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, but even more importantly, his ambassador to Israel, David Friedman. Before Trump was even inaugurated, before he had announced any major appointments, David Friedman had already told the world in December of 2016 that he was going to be Trump's ambassador to Israel. David Friedman is a longtime supporter of the settlement movement. So this isn't about Trump Netanyahu. This is about support amongst Trump people 
for the settlement movement in Israel, which is to Netanyahu's right, or has been until now, and to Netanyahu's right. And so David Friedman has been working from day one to get the Trump administration to take actions that would create irreversible facts on the ground in support of the settlement movement's project, which is permanent retention of Judea and Samaria. And the fact that Friedman's preferences are enshrined in this plan that not a single settler is displaced, that every settlement is annexed to Israel, that the Palestinians movement, even within their own you know, entity, but from one territorial component to the other is entirely subject to Israeli control, the conditions placed on Palestinian statehood, all of these criteria are the criteria of the settlement movement and the criteria of David Friedman. So that's the substantive part. The political part, though, for looking ahead, is that Trump and Netanyahu have successfully polarized the American political discussion of Israel and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to a degree we have never before seen in American history. Republicans going forward have a new baseline, not because of this plan, but because of everything Trump has done with Netanyahu to polarize American politics on this issue. And Democrats, on the you know, for their part, are going to have a very hard time accepting anything that even smells like this plan in the future for the same reason. I think that bodes very ill for any future administration's ability to have a strong enough foreign policy consensus to work seriously on behalf of conflict resolution between Israelis and Palestinians. I think what Trump has done is essentially broken America's ability to be a partner to the Palestinians in any meaningful way to help broker, you know, as Ben described, a more lasting, a more substantive Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement. Yeah, I, yeah I, I'll just very briefly just want to say that I, I want to return to your question about whether th- this is Trumpy or whether this is Republican. I think there's a very clear answer to that, which is that it is Trumpy, it is a, a great divergence from the historic position of Republican executive branches, uh, the George W. Bush administration, which was considered quite pro-Israel, negotiated, you know, held, sponsored, participated in negotiations based on the Oslo framework, right? And they, you know, when Prime Minister Olmert was in power, they came very close to a final status agreement with the Palestinians uh, just before he fell and Netanyahu came to power. That was during that was the Bush administration, right? The George H. W. Bush administration convened the Madrid conference. So there was a real bipartisan understanding of what the U.S. set of positions was in the Palestinian-Israeli conflict that ebbed and flowed within a very narrow range. And Trump came in and put, you know, a cluster bomb in the middle of this and basically started giving Israel everything it wanted without negotiation. And that is hugely disruptive, not just to U.S. policy, but to the Republican approach. And that all that said, Tamara is absolutely right. He has reset the Republican baseline, and it's going to be very difficult for future Republicans whatever their instincts might be, to seem less pro-Israel than, than Trump has been. And so uh, one other tiny point, uh, there is one other big factor in the Trumpiness of that, and that is the evangelical component of his coalition. 
this is not simply, you know, the Orthodox Jews that like David Friedman and Jason Greenblatt and and Jared Kushner, whom he has put in charge of this. It is also a big component of his political coalition, you know, when a lot of what evangelical communities care about are judges and Israel, right? And so there's a there's an alignment of different forces that support Trump that demand this policy of him. And I agree that it is it is a reflection of his constituencies. All right, so let's stay on the foreign policy theme and stay on the theme here for the podcast. We need like theme music for this recurring segment. That's our theme music. Theme yeah, music. but you know, when like I sing it, it's for With this. trumpets, uh, what we talk about, it seems <laughs> like trumpets. Uh, Sophia Yan may have something to say about that. Crumpets, um, maybe. <clears throat> oh, I like crumpets. Can we get some crumpets in here? Maybe next week. Uh, looking at the foreign policy Positions, views, plans, big sky thinking of the Democratic candidates. And this week, Joe Biden has a long essay in Foreign Affairs magazine. Did he um, write it himself? Well, I think we all <laughs> I think Barack it. Obama wrote it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's kind of the perfect lead into my question. Spoiler alert, guys. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, yeah. And, uh, Tammy or Susan, you could take a first crack at this if you want. Um, it, it, look, it, it's no surprise that the, the majority of this plan is essentially I'll do the opposite of Trump. I'll spend time undoing what I think Trump did. But really, he's – I mean, Biden's kind of articulating – a lot of big ideas about the role of the United States as a sort of uh, global beacon and leader for democracy that feel very Obama-y. They feel very sort of mainline American foreign policy. Let's feel good about our role in the world. Um, there were some, some specifics that we'll get to maybe, especially one on trade that I want to get your guys' thoughts on. But the top line of this sounds like it's very much in line with the Biden campaign, which is reset. I think that's right. My big takeaway was really um, everything is foreign policy. Everything, everything is foreign affairs, right? So he starts this conversation <laughs> well, about, Warren was like this about restoring yes. U.S. foreign policy, and he begins with a discussion of the Voting Rights Act and and restoring democracy at home, right? So I, I mean, it is you know he talks about well you know national security is economic security, and so we need to care about trade. I mean, so really it is. Um, I I don't quite know what to make of it, but it is um, it is certainly a vision that suggests that foreign policy is an all-encompassing, you know, sort of sort of interconnected element of policy that we would ordinarily think of as being primarily domestic policy. I mean, Tammy, am I, uh, is this more common uh, than, than I perceive? Or is it a little strange to see Voting Rights Act enforcement in an essay entitled Rescuing U.S. Foreign Policy? He wants to Trump. apply the Voting Rights Act extraterritorially. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, if one is going to engage in extraterritoriality, that's not a bad place to start. Make sure that, make sure that like, Everybody gets French voted. people yeah. can vote in um, France. <laughs> look, I, I, I think I would flip that on its head, Susan. Actually, and we've just, you know, we've discussed before that Americans do not generally vote on foreign policy issues, and so 
um, candidates typically have to check the box and demonstrate some seriousness on foreign policy, but really they have to show that they care about domestic policy. So it's not at all surprising to see an essay in foreign affairs that essentially, you know, the first section of which is called Renewing Democracy at Home and then talks about a foreign policy for the middle class. Like, you know, the appeal is clear here. Everything is domestic policy. If everyone's job is jobs as consular officers. <laughs> That's a, that would be an interesting jobs program. It would definitely help with the visa backlog. But, you know, as far as the substance of this beyond that broad framing, which I think is kind of inevitable, I would agree that there's a little bit of Obama nostalgia here. But I would say that there are some important differences and also just some important points of emphasis, because within the Obama-Biden administration, Obama was kind of the front face of multilateralism and nuclear security and climate change and and stuff like that. And Biden was more the I do the war and peace stuff. I have the Iraq portfolio, you know. And here, Biden is kind of claiming those more democratic base-oriented issues, climate, nuclear security, working on multilateral agreements with other countries, and making them his own, climate in particular, you know, which he's done in the debates as well, sort of saying, yeah, I'm an old guy, but really, I get it. I get it. Climate is the issue. It's going to make or break our existential future. So, you know, that's smart politicking. And I think it's probably also pretty sincere. And it's his first chance, actually, to step out from behind Obama's shadow on some of those issues. But I agree with you, Shade, that the free, fair trade stuff is some of the more interesting stuff. If if you just read this quickly, it actually a lot of it sounds a lot like Elizabeth Warren's foreign mm-hmm. policy, mm-hmm. you know, except on two points. One is one is trade where he says, I don't think we should quit negotiating free trade agreements with countries. I actually, you know, we need fair trade and unions have to like it. But trade is really important for us. The rest of the world is a huge market. And then the other area of separation is on use of force and counterterrorism, where uh, Warren and other candidates have said, no, I want all troops out of the Middle East, you know, bring everybody back home. And Biden is trying to sketch out a position that says, look, we still need to do counterterrorism. We still need to have troops in some places to prevent threats from emerging. But I'm going to be careful and selective about it so we're not stuck in these conflicts forever. Well, one thing that struck me on the trade section, too, was that he, he was – yes, he was advocating for for free trade agreements and saying we need to negotiate them, which is implicitly a rebuke of Trump and the sort of move towards you know bilateralism and blowing up – trade agreements or just blowing them up and kind of rebuilding them and just sticking his name on them. But it's also, by the way, a much clearer position than Hillary Clinton had in 2016, where she was like, oh, you know, I like trade, but I don't like trade agreements. Those are bad. Well, yes, that's that's, that's kind of where I was going with this. And, you know, he he, he says in there, I'm not going to conduct any new trade agreements until we bring other stakeholders to the table that he feels were left out, including, uh, you know, labor, trade unions, uh, people who are concerned about the climate. Now you could as if labor and environmental leaders were 
not at the table during the Obama well, okay, so administration. That's a good question then. Okay, so right. So then maybe that's a straw man argument. But what I, what I guess what I detected in the broad strokes here was not certainly not a hostility to free trade agreements, but a kind of skepticism towards them and saying maybe we should be careful about how we approach these. And I, I can't tell if I'm overreading that or I, if we're really – I think that's exactly what he wants okay, to Okay, good. Yeah, go with that. Go with that. What he's going for there – is the appearance of skepticism about trade in a fashion that does not preclude his ability to do, in fact, what he thinks is in the national interest once in office. And the the basic problem for center-left Democrats is that they're pro-trade and there are good reasons to be pro-trade like economic growth and, you know, exports and all the reasons, lower prices on consumer goods. There's lots of reasons. But people hate them, hate trade agreements. And there are environmental consequences, there are job loss consequences, and there are working conditions consequences. And so all of which involve, uh, from a democratic point of view, core values that your party actually does represent. And so the trick here, if you're in fact a Democrat who has supported major trade agreements, is to sound a note of skepticism while still preserving your ability to you know, do things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, you know, last was actually a good idea, um, do things like the South Korea Free Trade Agreement and not tie your hands. The question I was actually going to ask you, Susan, is Tammy's already hit on it. If we look at one foreign policy here that does seem to be pretty clearly dividing the democratic field, it is this question of use of force, where we're committing our troops. And, you know, the further to the left, it seems to me that you go, the more you are seeing, uh, you know, articulated a policy that's frankly more in line with the president, which is that we need to get out of these places in the world and focus at home. And you've got Biden and Buttigieg and probably to some degree Klobuchar very much taking out a more centrist position that says, no, 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 we still have to have a presence. We're not advocating for, you know, adventure and getting involved in military conflicts, but we are the world's superpower and therefore we need to be projecting a presence. It seems like that we've had this kind of realignment in American politics maybe where it's now a centrist idea to talk about having American troops committed to some degree keeping peace in order and it's more of a far right and far left idea to, to pull them back and that Biden is pretty well reflecting that in this piece. I mean, I guess I don't find that especially surprising because the centrist position is always or typically the preservation of the status quo. And, and mm. that really is you know, the argument that, that Biden's making or, or at least the, the the status quo as it existed you know, prior to Donald Trump. And, you know, one thing that um, – look, I, I don't expect any of the candidates to be especially charitable to Donald Trump's foreign policy. But um, one thing that will be interesting to see um, if, in fact, there is a Democratic a Democrat in the White House in 2021 is the areas in which Donald Trump has opened up opportunities for them to, to revisit some things and um, – I think we might see a few more strands of sort of, um, I wouldn't say appreciation, but um, but recognition that Trump has created opportunities, although he's exploited them in a particularly pernicious way. Um, there, there is another area in which I think we're seeing um, a, an interesting split among Democrats, and, and that really is on immigration. Um, and so one of the things that um, that is very much a return to um, uh, Barack Obama's policy is this notion that um, you know he's gonna he's gonna uphold U.S. law without targeting particular. Communities violating due process or t- tearing families apart. It will secure 
our borders while ensuring the dignity of migrants and upholding their legal right to seek asylum. Remember, this is playing out against a primary in which slogans like abolish ICE and decriminalization of border crossings appear to sort of uh, be emerging as the far left positions. Um, and, and I do think that this is a recognition that um, the president is winning on immigration and that these really, really horrific images we're seeing of family separations and, and these things that have a lot of emotional resonance, that, that is not winning the day. That is not causing people to fundamentally rethink the way they think about immigration policy, border policy. And so I also think that we're seeing um, a little bit of realism here and also of Biden thinking thinking beyond the primary and into the general. We've, we've said this, I think, early on, which is that kind of Biden's plan from the outset has been he's running against Donald Trump. He's not running against, you know, he's not running against other Democrats. He's sort of taking the long view. And, and I do think that that is one theme here, which is that he's not really concerned about distinguishing himself or even sort of capitulating to some of the ideas that, that do appear to have really taken hold in the primary field. And, and obviously, this is um, meant for sort of a, a particular and slightly more sophisticated audience. Um, but instead, he's thinking about, you know, that November vote and the, and the voters that he's going to need to win over and and offering policy positions that among sort of the Democrat Democrats in the field are, are not especially popular right now. Um, and, and, and so I, I do think that's that's just an interesting sort of um, insight into where Joe Biden plans to head, not just through the rest of the primary, but but beyond as well. I think that's a really important point. And I think it also helps to explain a tendency in this essay to do a little bit of on the one hand, on the other hand, or to do a little bit of laying out what's a very standard democratic foreign policy talking point and then to caveat America it. is good, Tammy. <laughs> right. But I, I do want to um, just note one thing. There are divides within the democratic primary field on some foreign policy issues, including trade and tr including immigration and including use of force. But there's one thing that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders agree on 100 percent, and it's a big theme in this essay, and it was a big theme in, I think, the first foreign policy essay we discussed, which was Bernie Sanders' op-ed in The Guardian, um, wait, like almost a year ago, which is democracy and the importance of the United States strengthening its own democracy in order to build a coalition of democratic states in the world um, to solidify democracy and human rights globally. And, you know, a lot of the specific ideas in this essay are kind of harking back to the Bill Clinton administration and, you know, rebuilding what is essentially already the community of democracies. But it's drawing a sharp contrast with a Trump administration that has defined this era in global politics as just a raw competition of power. Both Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are saying it's not just about raw power. It's about values. Values are part of what make the United States powerful in the world, and we need to build on that. Get your own house in order first. Was the too long didn't read it. <laughs> All right. Foreign policy begins at home, Shane. It sure does. Uh, let's move on to object lessons. I haven't even asked if you all have objects. You've got one. You've got one. Do you have one, Susan? I might. We'll you see. Might. Okay, we'll come around to it. It's like well, ordering last at a table. Well, why don't, <laughs> <laughs> come back to me. Don't wait, don't wait for me. Hold on. Um, so let me – I'll actually do mine. I'll do mine first. Mine is um, – this may be the first time that we've ever had a uh, shout-out to InStyle Magazine. What? On the podcast. 
And maybe people who listen much to- less the first time you've ever been scooped by InStyle <laughs> magazine. Well, I, actually, no, because when I worked for Movie Lion magazine back in the day, <laughs> they were like some of our arch rivals. That was when InStyle was just. Uh, and it, it was like you thought it was a style magazine, but then it was becoming a celebrity magazine. and Getting uh, too big for their britches. Maybe so. They've come back for me, damn it. Um, <clears throat> but now they scooped me this time uh, with an interview with uh, Sue Gordon, who, of course, was the principal deputy director for national ah. intelligence. Career-long uh, intelligence officer, uh, obviously widely respected. Uh, many people thought uh, perhaps might become the DNI or even the acting DNI since that's what the law kind of says uh, when Dan Coates was pushed out uh, at the top. Uh, but then also Shia also left as well. Uh, under pressure from the president. And she actually talks about this in the interview, which is worth checking out. Uh, it's a pretty brief interview, but she does say on this quote from here uh, on her comment about being pushed out by Trump, quote, there's no reason in the world that the president shouldn't trust me. I don't know who was served by this, and I don't understand the real basis. It hurt. She sounds a little like Marie Ivanovich in that quote. You know, yeah, there is there's an element of that. Um, uh, there's not a whole lot more in the interview. These it was kind of part of a series of uh, of women leaders. Uh, she does talk very openly about her own battle with cancer, which was uh, I think pretty brave of her to talk about, and gives a new kind of human dimension to to her time. But I thought that was notable. I mean, she is out there on record uh, saying, you know, Mr. President, WTF. Uh, so I think this will not be the last you hear from Sue Gordon. Ben. And now for something completely different. <laughs> um, I This was also a first in, in object lessons. This is the first time uh, any of us is going to read as his object lesson the, an entire law review article. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. But I, I, don't worry. More uh, scotch. It, it won't take long. <laughs> a few days ago, I was, as I'm sure you were, scratching my head thinking, I wonder what my favorite law review article of the last half century was. I know and, I was. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Oren Kerr tweeted a link. I don't really know why he tweeted it to this article that he wrote in a law review called The Green Bag a few years ago. It is called A Theory of Law, and it reads in its entirety as follows. This is a published law review article. It is a common practice among law review editors to demand that authors support every claim with a citation. These demands can cause major headaches for legal scholars. Some claims are so obvious or obscure that they have not been made before. Other claims are made up or false, making them more difficult to support using references to the existing literature. Legal scholars need a source they can cite when confronted with these challenges. It should be something with an impressive but generic title. I therefore offer this page with the following conclusion. If you have been directed to this page by a citation elsewhere, it is plainly true that the author's claim is correct. For further support, consult the extensive scholarship on this point. And um, – so this article was published. We all had a good laugh over it. Uh, it was published, I think, in 2005. And then a hilarious thing started happening. It started getting cited in law review articles um, by accident because like student contributor, student editors would need a cite and they would write in a theory of law as the citation. 
Um, and so uh, this is my absolute favorite uh, law review article of the last half century. And now you can cite it to support any point you need wow. it to support. See, I think this misses Orrin Kerr's actual greatest contribution to law review articles, which is that after John Roberts commented that if you pick up any law review article, you'll quote the first article you're likely to is likely to be, you know, the influence of Immanuel Kant on evidentiary approaches in the 18th century Bulgaria or something, to which Orrin Kerr wrote a wrote a law review article entitled The Influence of Manuel Kant on Evidentiary Approaches in 18th Century <laughs> Bulgaria, the, the conclusion of which is this short essay explains why in all likelihood Kant's influence on evidentiary expressions in 18th century Bulgaria was not. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. This is like a one-man law review implementation of that Twitter meme about in this essay I will. Well, right? <laughs> to, to be fair to Oren Kerr, he is in fact in his real life as a Fourth Amendment scholar, the most cited law professor in court opinions in the country. Wow. And quite a joker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and he's very And a laugh too. riot. Why isn't he writing for SNL? <laughs> I have a very brief object lesson, which okay. you already mentioned earlier in the podcast, which is that our colleagues, um, Margaret Taylor and, and Michaela and Jacob and, and Quinta and others, have been undertaking heroic efforts to take each day of the impeachment hearings, these like many, many hours of testimony, and condensing it down to like an hour and a half each day. It's hugely helpful. Even if you've been following along, I would very, very highly recommend going back to the beginning and giving it a listen. And um, it's just on the report feed and we have uh, articles linking to it on Lawfare as well. But just a shout out to them for um, an amazing job. Well done. Um, we actually haven't been and I haven't really done that much with it at all. It's, it's really been all them. And um, I myself am finding it a hugely helpful resource because Man, those people are boring. They I do like the work. We take the credit. A very lot. successful management strategy. <laughs> uh, Tammy, what's your object? Okay, so my object is something out of Israel that has nothing to do with Arab-Israeli Thank conflict. Goodness. Um, but it's a very, very interesting interview conducted by Tal Schneider, who's a fantastic reporter for Globes, which is the Israeli business magazine. It's an interview with... H.R. McMaster, who was in Israel for a security conference. Yeah, remember him? And she asked him a bunch of questions about the Trump administration. Um, He had some very tough things to say about Putin in the Middle East and the way Israel is making a huge mistake by empowering and celebrating Putin and his role in the region, and it's going to um, come back to bite Israel. But there's also a really wonderful little bit in here in which she asks him point blank, were you the one who proposed the targeted killing of uh, Qasem Soleimani in 2017? <laughs> and he gives a very interesting answer. I am not going to read it out to you right now, but... I took away from this interview that he might well have done exactly that. So I commend this all to you. Um, Good job, Tal Schneider, on a great get and asking great questions. And you guys don't want to miss this. Nice. All right. That's nice. You know, the simplest question, the most direct question is the best one. Did you order the code red? (laughs) Damn right I did, David. (laughs) H.R. McMaster, who probably feels he just doesn't get enough credit for things. (laughs) (laughs) That is clearly an underlying driver in this interview. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we're about to give credits here, the end credits, because it's time to end the podcast, you guys. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find H.R. McMaster memorabilia. (laughs) No, you cannot. (laughs) 
we definitely don't have any of <laughs> definitely that. Definitely not the uh, saint candles for H.R. McMaster. Yeah, we were looking the at the, bo- the Bob Mueller devotional calendar. candle. Which just is dereliction here. of duty with like a smiley face, <laughs> a frowny face written on it. An H.R. McMaster doll. No. Bobble hat. Uh, sure. Everyone's cute as a bobble hat. Bobble big round bobble Yeah, at rationalsecuritybobblehead.store. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It helps other people find the show, and we are very grateful for that. Our audio engineer this week was Jacob Schultz. The show is edited and produced by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by John Bolton and his new spoken word album of classic American horror stories, Deus Ex Manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. good. Some scary shit in there, you guys. <laughs> Top secret. <laughs> Duh. Love secret scary. Top scary. Then oh, highly man. classified. Sophia All Yan the stories in vile of facial hair. Ooh, yeah. Creepy mustaches that come to life. And crawl off oh, you. And next to you. Stop. On behalf of my good friends Ben Wittes, Tamar Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. 